SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yama and welcome to NITV Radio. Today is Monday, April 24. Coming up in your program today, we'll have two stories focusing on voice to parliament. First, a conversation with Emma Gallet, a lawyer and academic at Curtin University, will be explaining to us how the government and opposition cleared the way to voice a referendum by reaching an agreement a few weeks back. The second story on voice looks at the nation's top lawyer's legal opinion on proposed changes to the constitution, saying that the voice would enhance government and won't pose any threat to democracy. Also in the program today, we have a conversation with an indigenous scholar who's just returned from a study trip visiting the world's top universities, a tour that aims to build the next generation of indigenous leaders. All these stories and more coming to you on ITV Radio after the latest news, broadcasting from Nam on the Kulin Nation this Monday afternoon. Bertrand Tungandami, I am Bertrand Tungandami. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy erected outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. This bulletin, Pacific elders stand with Torres Strait Islands communities to demand greater climate action. A defense review set to reshape Australia's military spending. And a 7.3 Richter scale, earth- Richter scale earthquake hits near the Kamadek Islands off the New Zealand coast. Pacific Elders' body has backed a Torres Strait Islander-led push to hold the federal government accountable for its actions to tackle climate change. Paul Kabai and Pabai Kabai have taken the government to court demanding further emissions reductions in line with science. Hailing from the Boigu and Saibai communities, the two Torres Strait Islander men are arguing Australia has breached its duty of care to the islands by failing to prevent climate change and harm to their communities. They are seeking a court order to force further cuts to carbon emissions in line with the best available scientific analysis. The former president of Kiribati, Anote Tong, lent his support and said Australia needed to do more to cut emissions. An inquest has found police showed a lack of respect and care for the family of Gomeroy man Gordon Gordon Copland, who was found drowned in a Moray River three months after he was missing, he went missing. The New South Wales coroner has recommended police review their training, noting the traumatic history between law enforcement and First Nations people. But the 
family remains skeptical of any meaningful change. So it doesn't matter to us what the police say or did off camera or what they do on the stand. Their tears don't convince us. None of it felt genuine to us. A, re- a review of Australia's Defence Force is expected to lay out the case for spending more on land-based missiles and less on new armoured vehicles. A declassified version of the Defence Strategic Review is to be released today along with the Albanese government's response. The landmark report aimed at preparing Australia's Defence Forces for the strategic changes over the next decade and beyond was commissioned by the federal government in August last year. Minister of Defence Industry Pat Conroy previewed some of the details of the upcoming announcements. We'll be very clear that we will be reducing in scope or delaying projects that are less impactful, that have a lower priority than the announcements we're making. We've already provided details in the Army, for example, that we will be reducing the number of infantry fighting vehicles in order to invest in more high Mars rocket systems and to deliver land-based maritime strike. So, for example, that will increase the range of strike from the Australian Army from 40 kilometres to in excess of 500 kilometres. The review is expected to recommend dumping or trimming projects and redirecting funding towards higher priority areas at a time when the budget is under pressure on several fronts. Independent Senator Jackie Lambie has expressed expressed her concerns regarding Australia's military presence just hours away from the announcement on Australia's defence strategic review. The review commissioned by the federal government last February is expected to bring the largest shake-up in Australia's defence forces within the last few decades. Senator Lambie has told Channel 9 that the review may include some economic shake-ups, a fact that has already been confirmed by government officials. Where is the money? coming from because if you're going to tour it out of that, are you going to take it out of the land forces? Are you going to take it off army? That's usually what happens. So if you stack either the Air Force or Navy up, it has to come out of one or two of the others. So it'll be very interesting to see what um, that review looks like. There are calls for the federal government to expand eligibility for the single parent benefits as the May budget approaches. Close to 80,000 single parents were forced off the plan after a decision made by the Gillard government in 2013, which saw them move to the lower paying job seeker. The Women's Economic Equality Task Force called for the reintroduction of the payment for mothers of children up to 16 years old. Independent MP Zo Daniels has told the ABC that based on the budget office, such a change would cost around $1.1 billion within a span of four years. We need to flip this on its head and say what's the benefit to the economy of empowering these women because it seems to be always the women's budget measures that get delayed or skinnied down because of cost without that benefit being considered. Environment Minister Minister Tanya Pibasek says she doesn't believe recent polls are reflective of people's opinions regarding Prime Minister Antony Albanese. The latest report by News Poll shows that the government has increased its lead over the coalition as the most preferable party by a single point, 56 to 44. However, Anthony Albanese's popularity as Prime Minister has dropped by four points since the last poll, by 60 to 56, with Peter Dutton going up by two points, 28 from 26. Ms. Bribasek has told Channel 7 that the public has faith in a leader that gets things done. 
people tell me that they're pleased to see a government that is just getting on with the job, doing what we promised, and they're impressed that the Prime Minister is just sticking with what he said he'd do. A magnitude 7.3 earthquake has struck near the Kamadek Islands region, 997 kilometers north of New Zealand this morning, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. The quake was at a depth of 10 kilometers and has led to the New Zealand National Emergency Management Agency advising those who felt the earthquake to move immediately for higher ground or as far inland as possible. The agency says it's assessing if the earthquake has created a tsunami that could affect New Zealand. There is also a tsunami warning for Antarctica in effect, but Australia is safe, as are American Samoa and Guam. The earthquake has not resulted in a Pacific-wide tsunami warning. The Kremlin has stated that the United States have denied entry visas for journalists who wish to cover Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov's upcoming trip to New York. There was no immediate comment from the State Department about the claim of refused visas. The journalists aimed to cover Lavrov's appearance at the United Nations to mark Russia's chairmanship of the Security Council. Lavrov suggested Russia would take strong retaliatory measures shortly before his departure from Moscow. A country that calls itself the strongest, smartest, free and fair country has chickened out and done something stupid by showing what its sworn assurances about protecting freedom of speech and access to information are really worth. The dispute comes in the wake of high tensions with Washington over the arrest last month of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Keskovich, whom Russia accuses of espionage. The United States has declared him to be wrongfully detained. 21 bodies have been found so far on land owned by a pastor in coastal Kenya who was arrested for telling his followers too fast to death. Malindi sub-county police chief John Kemboy says more shallow graves have yet to be dug up on the land belonging to Pastor Paul Mackenzie, who was arrested on April 14 over links to cultism. A father four people died after they and others were discovered starving at the Good, Good News International Church. Police have asked a court to allow them to hold Mackenzie longer as investigations into the deaths of his followers continue. Human rights activist at Haki Africa Khalid Hussein says every religious organization in the country should belong to a registered structured framework. We can't have people who just wake up one day in the name of a calling to, you know, uh, drive people on a suicide path. Every church, every mosque, every temple and synagogue must belong to a registered structured framework. The statement of a Chinese official who questioned the the legitimacy of former Soviet Union nations have sparked outrage in Ukraine and and other countries in Europe. The Chinese ambassador to France, Lu Shei, has said the sovereignty of those nations cannot be validated since no international agreement was ever made to approve of their independence. Mr. Shei also questioned if Ukraine ever had any true claims over Crimea, which was annexed by Russia in 2014. The remarks by China's top envoy to France caused a swift response by the Baltic nations as Estonia, Lithuania and Latvia have all demanded explanations from their respective ambassadors. 
and to sport traditional rivals Collingwood and Essendon have set up their biggest Anzac Day clash in more than two decades with strong starts to the Australian Football League season. More than 90,000 fans are expected at a sold-out Melbourne cricket ground on Tuesday with the two sets of supporters buoyed by what they've seen from their teams over the opening five rounds. The old four arrived at round six with identical 4-1 records with only percentage percentage keeping the Magpies third and Bomber second off the top of the ladder. It's only the second time that the two sides have both sat in the top four heading into their annual Anzac Day clash, the first since 2000 and just the sixth, the sixth time that both have entered with positive win-loss records. And now a look at the weather around the country this Monday afternoon. Brome, sunny, 34. Perth, showers, 20. Adelaide, sunny, 27. Melbourne, sunny, also 24. Hobart, sunny, 21. Albury, Wodonga, sunny, 22. Canberra, partly cloudy, 21. Wollongong, showers, 21. Sydney, a shower, 2, 23. Newcastle, showers easing, 24. Brisbane, showers increasing, 26. Townville, partly cloudy, 29. Keynes, showers, 28. Early Springs, sunny, 28. Darwin, mostly sunny, 34. And the Torres Strait Islands are partly cloudy there and a top of 31 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. NITV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. Emma Gallet, lawyer and academic, is joining us to explore the legal intricacies of the management of the upcoming referendum on Indigenous Voice to Parliament. Welcome to ITV Radio, Emma. Thank you for having me, Bertrand. It's a pleasure to be here and talking to you and um, all the listeners today. Now, the main talk in town are the yes and uh, no campaigns about the Voice to Parliament, but... Before we got there, some obstacles had uh, to be overcome, and the most important one was about the management of the referendum, and uh, that would require actually a deal between the government and the opposition. Reaching that deal was um, one of the major steps towards the referendum. Yeah, you are right. It is a major step, and it was the first parliamentary hurdle for the voice to parliament to agree on the voice machinery, and the Senate has passed the bill So this means we have consensus of the ground rules for the referendum and we need to deliver a modern referendum and this really provides a pathway to do so. Getting the machinery of the referendum right is really important as it will ensure the referendum is transparent, fair and people are informed. For the um, voice machinery bill to be passed, I'd say the engagement with the opposition for the management has been constructive, hence the deal struck. The real crux of it is the Liberal politicians have decided to support the referendum going ahead, but they've actually actively campaigned against the voice, which is new news and it's disappointing, and not supporting calls for a voice actually disempowers Aboriginal people. It disrespects our history and place in Australia and it can actually impede all the work done to get us here. The decision of the Liberals, in my view, was really badly informed and it pushes us backwards as a nation. And as a result of that, Ken Wyatt quit Liberals over this decision. So it really rings home about how important it is to be properly informed 
And the voice working group has outlined the design principles for the voice, but it appears the opposition is considering all other information outside of what the Aboriginal voice working group is saying. The Liberal Party's official position is to vote against the voice, but one thing that has to be mentioned in the context of the deal about the management of the referendum is that uh, minor parties were also left out. Uh, they're not part of the deal. I just hope that other political parties, they realise the importance of the upcoming, upcoming referendum. That's a real, just important component of this because Australians need to understand the significance and impact of referendums and the importance It's been years and years in the making and many young Australians today would have not been old enough to have voted in the last referendum in 1999, which asked Australians if Australia should become a republic and the majority wanted Australia to remain a monarchy. So I think really what needs to happen is for the voice referendum, um, it's important to note that no government funding will go towards any campaign spending that's not a neutral civics campaign. And both the yes and no case um, have got deductible gift recipient status to organisations which support either campaign, which is um, also important because it means both sides have equal footing for donations, which means Australians can have Um, be educated and informed about whichever side they decide to choose to vote on when the referendum does come between October and December this year. Now, we've had 44 consultations for constitutional change in the country and only eight have actually succeeded. It looks like we are starting kind of a wrong footing with one of the major parties already deciding to go against, uh, together with minor players, they could make this referendum fail. Yeah, it's hard to tell, but you are right. There have been 44 proposals for constitutional change and only eight have been approved, So, which is a really small number. And referendums are not an easy task. You need a double majority, which means a national majority of voters in the states and territories, a majority of voters in the states, at least four out of the six states, and all votes of people living in the ACT, the Northern Territories, um, count towards the national majority only. People need to understand what is happening, what's being asked of them, why it's important and what it means for them and for Indigenous people because the constitution can only be changed by the people. At the moment, we are at a great starting point to be on track to ensure a successful referendum, but it is just really difficult now with the Liberals saying that they're going to have a no campaign Um, which is not in line with what many First Nations people want. And latest news polls have said that most people in Australia actually do support uh, the voice to parliament. And the referendum has got two components, actually. It's not just voice to parliament. It's also uh, recognising First Nations people in the constitution. Yeah, that's right. It's something that really needs to be recognised, our people in the constitution as well. And the wording of the Indigenous voice has been revealed. And the question is, a proposed law to alter the constitution to recognise the first peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Do you approve of this proposed alteration? So in that question, you can see that it's altering the constitution to recognise first people by the establishment of a voice. And the question is important, especially the use of emotive language. The length of the question is also important. But 
the question alone will not win or lose the referendum because it's about people and it's about what um, progress we need to make. And one of the things that I think is we can't sit back and not try. We need to try. We need to change. And there's a really old saying that goes, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. And I think that really applies here because we need to do something different to have a positive impact. The same old ways of working, they don't work. And this has been shown by having very limited, if any, improvement in a lot of health, education and poverty outcomes of Indigenous people in rural, remote, regional areas. And even in cities, um, it's even though there are services available, there's mistrust. People don't want it. There's not enough... Um, representation and understanding of Indigenous people and the voice can really help um, re-establish that trust, re-establish the truth-telling and really allow all of our people um, to be um, joined in a process of reconciliation. When uh, the Liberal Party said they'll be campaigning against, they said something that is uh, recurrent in the discourse. Uh, they said they'd support treaties on uh, local and state levels. Uh, what's the difference well, the Uluru Statement from the heart, it includes voice, treaty and truth, which means that as a part of the implementation of the Uluru Statement from the heart in full, the voice is one aspect. Treaties in each state and territory are also a um, really important component of that. And then the process of truth-telling. So everyone needs to understand that it's, a, it's all going to happen and it's all being committed to all three elements of the Uluru Statement from the heart and they shouldn't just be singled out. Um, it's not one versus the other. It's all of um, those three processes which will really make a difference. So it's a one step uh, towards uh, fulfilling all the aspects of the Uluru Statement from the heart, which was truth-telling and uh, voice to parliament and a treaty. And the states already, many of them are actually working on treaty, except New South Wales, which with the new government coming in uh, recently, well, it seems they're also going to be moving towards a treaty on a state level. I'm really hoping that treaties in each state do come into fruition. If you look at um, what's happened in Victoria, they're really proactive and progressive in terms of their treaty making that, that they've done. So other states really need to look to that example um, and ask the people in the community of each state how they want it to happen, what they need, because it's really going to represent them. But And also in saying that what, what works for one state may not work for the other. So the whole process on the outset needs to be done right, needs to be done with community consent, community consultation, and have a lot of our young people and elders involved as well. Because without having younger people involved in these processes, where's the succession planning as well? And the treaties are a really important component of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. So um, I'd like to see that happen and see how it progresses in each state and territory. Now, I believe a proper information campaign needs to take place with all sorts of conflicting messages being peddled, in particular the younger generations, uh, not only of First Nations background, but uh, allies as well, need to be properly informed about all the intricacies of the vote and uh, its implications. Yeah, the information needs to be really transparent and clear um, so people can understand 
what the voice of parliament is um, and what it means for them. And I was actually quite surprised to to hear that there needs to be um, that some people don't even really know um, enough about it. So there really needs to be more education around what the voice is, why it's needed, and how it will help people make an informed decision. And I think the other component of this is where the importance of regional voices as well needs to be communicated. And the regional voices shouldn't be forgotten in this. Um, and recently on my latest episode of the YouTube channel I do with the West Australian called Paint It Black, um, I went out and the West Australian went out and we spoke to some people around Perth and remote and regional WA to talk to community members around what they think of the voice. And from that, most people are really supportive of it. Um, once they understand how it will help them and how it can facilitate good decision-making and governance, because that ultimately will help close the gap. And it's time where we need our people representing us. And it needs to happen at all levels. It can't just happen at federal level. It needs to happen at like local, regional, um, remote levels as well so we can get accurate representation. Now, what else needs to be considered as part of the referendum? Uh, this will be my last question. I really think the main consideration now is around engagement and education. Our community need to understand what they're voting for and the benefits of the voice to parliament. We can't just sit back and not try. Um, so we need to do something different. And this is what we need to do because this is what a lot of people have come together and we've um, decided that having a voice to parliament is one aspect of the three elements of a voice, treaty and truth. So for everyone listening, I'd really encourage you to make sure your enrolment details are up to date because your vote matters. This is our future and we can't afford to sit on the sidelines anymore. Like we need to be heard. Emma Gallet, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us uh, today about uh, the upcoming uh, referendum. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. NITV Radio. Share our stories on Facebook. Welcome back. Bertrand Tungandami with you this afternoon on NITV Radio, broadcasting from NAM on the Cooling Nation. Coming up next, we continue to explore our voice, uh, re- to the voice referendum with the nation's law- top lawyer releasing his advice late last week on proposed changes to the Constitution to enshrine a voice to Parliament. Solicitor General Stephen Donahue says the voice would actually enhance government and won't pose any threat to democracy. This story coming to you through a report by SBS's Chiara Hellins. After intense pressure from the opposition, the federal government has made public its advice from its most senior legal advisor on the proposed voice to parliament referendum. The advice released from Solicitor General Stephen Donoghue is part of a parliamentary inquiry into the proposed constitutional changes. Of particular concern is Clause 2, which would allow the voice to make representations to Parliament and Executive Government on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. But the Solicitor General is of the opinion the proposed amendment would enhance Australia's system of government and wouldn't pose any threat to it. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has welcomed the advice. This puts to bed the absolute nonsense of Peter Dutton and Barnaby Joyce and all the nonsense that they've carried on with, saying that 
somehow recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our constitution will lead to Anzac Day being abolished. It is complete nonsense. Uh, They are just determined to play politics with this. The advice also suggests The Voice wouldn't impose any obligations upon the executive to follow representations of The Voice or consult with it prior to developing policy or making decisions. Dismissing concerns, The Voice would lead to a raft of litigation. Co-chair of the Uluru Dialogue, Megan Davis, says the scaremongering can now cease. Although the advice is not the full submission to Cabinet, and Deputy Liberal Leader Susan Lee says the opposition remains unconvinced. This advice was written, it appears, in the last couple of days. I would like to see all of the advice, including the initial advice released. I would like to understand all of the perspectives from all of the expert opinion, because it varies, as it always does. But the most important thing Australians need to see is explanations from the Albanese government that answer the questions that we've been now patiently asking for months. How will this work in practice? But the Prime Minister has backed the findings. We don't release, nor do any government ever release, uh, advice to Cabinet. Uh, People have said, and there's been speculation, uh, unfounded uh, by the Coalition... Uh, who, of course, should be renamed the Noalition. They said no to all the cost-of-living measures that we've put in place. And, of course, they've said no to a voice for Parliament, even before the committee process uh, has been undertaken. Constitutional expert Anne Toomey says the only relevant advice is the most recent. It would be a bit silly to be providing advice based on prior wording, Uh, because we really need to have the advice on the current wording that's in the actual bill. Uh, And uh, that takes into account all the developments that have happened up till now. So this is the most up-to-date advice from the Solicitor General. Uh, It is a fairly orthodox, legal, normal sort of um, advice that that a Solicitor General would give. There's nothing particularly unusual about it. The bill will continue to be scrutinised over the remaining month of the parliamentary inquiry. Constitutional Conservatives are proposing changes to the wording of the bill to make the voice's limitations more clear. That's something Professor Toomey argues is legally unnecessary. It does exactly the same thing from a legal point of view, but from a political point of view, making the words a little bit more specific might help people feel more relaxed about the provision. But not necessarily those who drafted the wording. Mr Albanese is adamant First Nations voices must be paramount. This is a generous and gracious offer of First Nations people to advance reconciliation in this country. And the Solicitor General's advice makes it very clear that it's legally sound, as well as, of course, former justices of the High Court, the leading legal academics in this country and others as well have all concluded the same, consistent with this Solicitor General's advice, which is very comprehensive. And he remains confident Australians will take up that offer in the form of a yes vote. Kira Hayne, SBS News. Your community, your conversation. NITV Radio. We must now step aside, but when we come back, a study tour to the world's highest ranking universities in a bid to build the next generation of Indigenous leaders.
and ITV Radio share our stories on Facebook. Aurora Education Foundation has just conducted a two-week tour of some of the world's top universities, including Harvard and New York University. Mitchell Strange, one of the participants in the tour, is joining us to share his experience and tell us about the benefits of such tours in advancing First Nations leadership in education. Welcome to NITV Radio, Mitchell. Thanks for having me. Now, as it's your first time on our show, let's just start by uh, a short introduction to our listeners. Yes, uh, how's it going, everyone? I'm Mitchell Strange. I'm a Google Yelenji man. My mob's from far north Queensland. Uh, but I was born and raised on Darawal land down in Sydney. I went to yeah school to Sydney, raised there. Uh, went to UAW as my undergraduate university. And I've now moved over to WA on the West Coast to on Wajak Noongan land, and I'm currently doing the meeting from here. Now, you're part of the tour. How far in um, the education journey do participants have to be to be eligible for this type of tour? They're looking at people who are very close to graduating, um, the undergraduate level, or have graduated either undergraduate or postgrad who are looking to do further postgraduate study after university. Yeah, obviously, people with a good track record. Now, which university altogether did you visit? Uh, we started in New York, so we started uh, with NYU and Columbia University as well. Uh, we had a week in New York, and then we traveled uh, north to Boston and then had a week there where we visited Harvard and MIT as well. And how far in your academic journey are you? I've, I've graduated from university, but I, I was an electrical engineer uh, and what, what I was looking for on the study tour is I'd probably doing my Master's of Science or uh, Master's, yeah, of Engineering Management, perhaps, at, at these universities. It's said that 94% of students who take part in Aurora Foundation tours, education tours, end up enrolling in one of the universities, uh, the institutions they've visited. What are your plans? Um, so I, I'm going to apply for MIT and NYU. And, and Columbia as well. But my two preferences would be MIT or NYU. Looking at doing some wireless communication research um, whilst doing the master's program with these unis. Why specifically do you choose these two institutions? Uh, MIT or Massachusetts Institute of Technology seems quite obvious. Why these choices? There are other institutions that also excel in um, technology. So at NYU... Um, a lot of my research actually came out of the wireless laboratory for my thesis. And so when I was there, I was lucky enough to actually be invited to go through the laboratory and look at all the equipment that they used to, to create the research, which then I used in my own research as well. So it was fantastic to see this state of the art equipment that's going to be used in like the new in 6G and, and future communication technologies. 6G, we've barely started deploying and adopting 5G and you're already talking about 6G. Well, that's like a decade away. Uh, closer than you think. It's it's getting close and uh, yeah, we have to start planning for it now. And so that's why I want to sort of be there and be amongst that sort of revolutionary technology that's coming. I've got this top-of-the-range phone with a 5G capability, but most of the time I'd be lucky to get 5G connectivity. A big chunk of the network is still using 4G, even 3G. 
as much as I love Australia, sometimes like, we do lack a little bit in our technology development. So I think these unis will provide a great opportunity to see see what's next and what the state of the art is. Going back to the tour, you said you had the opportunity to visit a state-of-the-art lab. Can you tell us more about uh, other features of the study tour? Yeah, so the, the tour was set up in a way that it was, we had to organise meetings with like academics and the professors uh, admissions officers in like the degrees and fields that we were interested in. Yeah. But then Aurora helped set up other meetings with current students, um, current current um, like Roberta Sykes scholars that are studying internationally right now. Like that, that was really good to have those sort of times to have questions and answers with them as well and what they've experienced while uh, being. Now, following your visit, uh, you say you've decided to do a master's. Will you do a master's by research or master's by coursework? That, those, those are some of the conversations that I've had. So a lot of the programs are set up to be like sort of coursework, but with the option of building in a research project in the in the, in the following year. So I'm hoping to, to be able to do to do the coursework and research components together. Yeah, it seems you're more interested in research. Uh, 6G, 6G more specifically. Have you narrowed down your research area? Uh, terahertz communications sort of thing. So that's in the upper radio bands in the microwave frequencies. Terahertz. Hertz in uh, HRTZ, I guess. Now you're going to have to educate me as I'm no scientist. Uh, that sounds like uh, something out of this world to me. Yes, our Wi-Fi, your Wi-Fi router at home that works on 2.4 gigahertz. Yeah. And so the terahertz is like another 1,000 times faster than that. Wow, that sounds like lightning speed. The blue sky thinking of this technology is that you could be in Australia and you could be performing um, surgery on someone who's in America with no lag or latency wow. sort of thing. That type of speed could give you the confidence to operate on someone remotely in real time without any lag, I guess. That could have life-threatening consequences if something were to go wrong because a one millimeter surgical incision can easily become a gaping wound instantly. It will give the ability to have that feedback on what, how like instantaneous, like how far you've cut. You can sort of feel that on the tools that you're going to be using. Almost in the, real yeah, time. That, it definitely in real time, absolutely in real time, yeah. Wow, that sounds like science fiction to me. I just consider how difficult it was for us to even be able to connect for this interview. Now you're telling me that in the future I can confidently undergo a surgical operation remotely. Just imagine the effect of a few seconds lag. If you slice someone's vein, then you lose connection even for a few seconds, let alone minutes. One could bleed to death in the meantime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely definitely a long way to go before we get there, but that's just the potential, you know, and the, it'd be nice to have, not necessarily what's going to happen. Going back to your study tour and your selection of places where you want to study, I can imagine myself many years back when considering where to study. Uh, well, in my case, I also looked at where the uni was, the city where it was located, whether it was a friendly place. Even the climate was a factor that um, went into uh, my decision making because I wouldn't want to be freezing to death or sweating like crazy. <laughs> yeah, so that, like, that, was a, that was a great thing about the study tour is that, you know, I got to go to New York and Boston and New York's this like amazingly crazy place and it's just like overwhelming when you first get there. 
like even if you live in Sydney, it's a, it's a it's a different experience. The amount of people that that are there, and to talk to current students that have moved from Australia and are living there, it gives you a good um understanding of what what you will need, like what housing requirements you're going to need, like what the cost of living will be while you're doing that sort of study. We had the we had a we had the mentor. Brett, who was on the tour with us, and there was, sorry, there was probably eight. There was eight of us, eight scholars on the tour, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. all different, all different um, backgrounds. But we had mentors. We had Brett the mentor, and then we met up with people who were at Columbia, who were at Harvard, who were at MIT. They were just giving us like great, oh, and even at NYU, sorry, too. Like they just gave us a good understanding of how everything worked. It sounds like an exciting tour. How long was the process of application and um, uh, all the process leading up to the trip itself? I, I applied back a, a long time ago now, um, before COVID happened. And so that was for the original study tour. But then because we couldn't travel internationally, we did a, um, a, a Sydney symposium instead. So we did a little bit of similar. I reapplied again at the end of last year, uh, or started this year, sorry. Um, and we did a little like interview process um, and just sort of, yeah, talk through what your motivations for study are and why you're interested in the study tour. Yeah. Uh, I think you, I think I had to, I had to attach what my, like my university transcripts and possibly a few letters of referee, like from a referee as yeah. well. Yeah. Like an academic and personal referee. That was for the original, original um, study yeah, tour the, that I wanted to go on to, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, I, I, there was a new this this time around. The applications opened, I think, in December and January um, to go on to this study tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. COVID, uh, yeah, it wrecked havoc for everyone. But besides having to prepare your application, uh, the visa process as well, I'd guess that will take time. And I believe applications are now open for the next batch of students to do the same tour. Like applications for this, like the next study tour, have just opened as well. I just got a an email confirming that as well. Yeah. So again, how far are you in your process? Uh, when are you starting? I haven't actually applied to the universities yet. So my, my intention is to study after. Yeah. Um, so 2025. 2025 is when I... Wow. Uh, and I'm already. Yeah. Um, that, that's how I am already working. I have a full-time job at the moment. I'm an onboard systems engineer um, for the locomotives. But... My workplace can be quite supportive in terms of further study, especially if it will build my skills and knowledge. So um, that's a that's a conversation I'm yet to have, but it'll be great to be able to have the opportunity to to go to such an institution and then bring that knowledge back to Australia. Now, Mitchell, any final thoughts before I let you go? I guess just probably one thing. It was quite confronting walking into places like Columbia and Harvard. Like these are institutions that have stood for over 300 years for like but they've been mainly for like their you know rich white people and their legacies like they're just a big symbol of colonialism so when i first entered the mug i'm like i I very much thought wasn't worthy or or even like smart enough to be there um but like yeah just just these positive conversations that I had with within like admissions officers, there's professors, like the mentors and like the, the leaders who are there to support us, even other scholars, like they just helped me realize that we're going to be there for a reason where we're traveling there to study and disrupt that status quo. And I think that's what we should be 
looking at doing and, and challenging ourselves to, to do that. Uh, are those institutions ready to adapt and provide a safe space for First Nations people from other parts of the world, uh, Australia in this uh, particular case? They are very open to, to anyone coming to these universities like that. That's what I found. But it's a good point in terms of the First Nations people. It, it is it is a stark difference between what facilities they, they have access to in these universities compared to the what we have at, at our at our own universities, their Indigenous centres or their First Nations centres, like they they don't really compare in a way. Um, but at, at Harvard, they have a program, the HUNAP, um, the HUNAP's is a program, Harvard University Native American program, but they look after all First Nations people from across the world. So if you go to Harvard there, they will look after you as well. Providing cultural safety, I believe, is uh, the minimum they should provide. What else do they do that stands out? Uh, so that, that, that's a great question. Like, I think they, they're very much um, a methodology of enabling that sort of stuff. So if you want to bring something and celebrate or have something like recognised, I guess, you, you can use them to help support you push that through. I think some of these institutions are very big at times and it's hard for just one student to make waves. But if you have the support of an entire uh, yeah, program behind you, then that can help as yeah. well. Because yeah, 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 yeah. uh, we, we did have we did have some great conversations with UNAP as well when we were there. We even went to their lecture, um, their annual lecture that they had. But yeah, they were talking about how they organised um, a, a trip out Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. And uh, that's all we have for you on NITV Radio this Monday afternoon. Bertrand Tungendame. I am Bertrand Tungendame thanking you for staying with us today and wishing you a beautiful afternoon. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu.